Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Elaine Maxwell episode, and I listened to that one. It is a fucking great show, man. Well, really, you. you know? Yeah, yeah. I I love when I love when we can do. Honestly, I love when we can do episodes like that when we talk about like real conspiracies and real corruption, mm-hmm. and like separate it from like the wild uh, conspiracy theories. Because I think I think honestly I think what. Um, I think the kind of the edge that we have in this space a little bit is that we is is uh is a few things. But one of them is like, oh well, yeah, I mean conspiracy theories are real. There are powerful people who do corrupt things, and there's yeah. always like a little at least a little grain of truth. But but at the same time, a lot of the stuff that people are believing it's damaging them and it's nonsense and it's misinformation. So I don't know, making that distinction I think is um is helpful. And like it's like I think a lot of a lot of like, you know stuff that talks about like conspiracy theories it's either it's either like all either goes all in be like all yes lizard people are real or it goes the other direction be like all everyone who's a conspiracy theorist is stupid and there's no reason to believe it and the world the the uh the 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 liberal order is just fine no critiques you know so (laughs) no notes no notes Yeah, it's like government is doing fine. The the ruling class has now. They, I'm sure they're perfectly transparent. So uh, that's that's no good either. But there's, I think there's a middle ground that's sort of approaching this material. Yeah, the CIA would never lie to us. Right, right, right. You know what I what I like about your show? Um, I mean, there's a lot, but one thing that's cool is that you talk about a lot of these conspiracy theory stuff. But you like, you also kind of have fun with like the conspiracy theories, like you kind of understand why conspiracy theories are like fun 
and like why people can get into them, at least on like a casual level, because you guys are kind of having fun with it too. And you joke about it and you kind of have fun, but like at the same time, it's, there's a reason we've all grew up kind of like at least courting the ideas of, you know, conspiracy theories. They're like fun to like listen to. And that's kind of what makes the show kind of fun too. You're not like, you're not, you're making fun of a lot of these people, a lot of these things, but you're also, it's also sort of like from a perspective of like, we understand it. We get it. We get like why people would want to believe there is these vast conspiracies behind like uh, Epstein and, and Maxwell and, and all that stuff. You know, I, that's something I think is really hard to balance. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think, yeah, like all of us, I mean, all of us, at least at one point in our lives, we were we were drawn to uh, we were drawn to conspiracy theories, um, you know, from a from a skeptical. Well, we are drawn to conspiracy theories in a very sincere way. Like, you know, I was like, you know, I was uh, like myself and, um, you know, like Julian, yeah, we we remember like when uh, was it Loose Change came out, I think in 2005, the 9-11 conspiracy film. And we were like hunched over our computers watching zoomed up video of puffs of clouds that are supposed to be controlled demolition. I never got really into it, but I thought like, you know, it's like, whoa, here's a, that was one of the first big conspiracy videos that went viral. And I thought was well, like, well, gee, this is incredible. This is at least worth considering. At least the, the premise, we understand the magnetism of these alternate ways of understanding what happened, especially big disastrous ones, especially in the face of, you know, uh, sort of reasonable distrust of authority. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like a one level. We get it. We get it. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. so we aren't we aren't we aren't saying that it's um it's it's inherently stupid to uh believe in conspiracy theories there's there's often you know like i said there's often a grain of truth and they're 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 just and the thing is that they're conspiracy theories at base they're stories and stories are inherently intriguing and they penetrate our psyche in really powerful ways so we understand the draw okay well uh, we should probably get the show started. Normally, I would actually, you know, cut this part uh, and just start the show. But, you know, you guys said so much stuff I like. I think I'm just going to keep it in and we're going to do something a little different. And I'm just going to start the show now. So here comes my uh, super annoying intro. It's what the people want. We understand. Yeah. <laughs> and welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kave. Joining me today, boy, we got some special guests. This is kind of a legendary moment in podcast history. I'm very excited to be bringing together these incredibly smart people from these different areas of interest uh, on the internet. A lot of overlap, I think we'll find. But that's like one of my favorite parts of doing the show. We're, you know, ostensibly this medical show, but we talk about a lot of other things involving public health and I think we're going to be delving into a lot of that today. And I love being able to bring in different people from different groups to do that. So this is a very exciting day for me. First of all, let's introduce the voices that you've been hearing so far in this conversation. Nathan Alabach, musician, writer, occasional podcaster, the voice of the Stakeham's Twitter account. If you're one of the medical professionals who's listening to this podcast and you drew the line to podcast and you said, I'm never going to get on Twitter, then you probably don't know why that's super exciting. But trust me, it's very cool. Um, and joining us also, we have Travis View, the host of the podcast QAnon Anonymous. It's this great podcast that covers conspiracy theories and all other 
dystopian stuff happening in the world right now. It's a really great show. And uh, I've gone down the rabbit hole of listening to it uh, recently myself, and I highly recommend it. And also joining us later will be Sharky Liguana. When he gets here, we'll work him in. Longtime listeners have, have heard him on the show a number of times. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, yeah, Nathan, it's great to have you back. And Travis, it's really nice to meet you. Like I said, uh, I, I have been listening to your show a lot recently. It's How long have you been doing the, the show for? Uh, we started um, in, I mean, I joined the show in October 2018. So yeah, yeah, over over three years now. So, you know, I, I'm getting caught up. You guys are at least at like 180 episodes plus. And you cover more than QAnon, obviously. Was that always sort of the plan? Like, how did it this evolve? Was it just you thinking at first, I want to talk about, uh, we want to talk about QAnon, and then you guys covered as much as you wanted to cover, and then you said, let's cover some other stuff? Or did you just sort of spread out organically, like studying QAnon kind of led to other things? Well, yeah, we. I, I mean, I wanted to talk about QAnon partly because I mean, it really, it really started um, on my Twitter account, which is I started um, under a fake name uh, with no real intention of doing a lot with it. But um, but I noticed basically that there's this weird conspiracy theory that was growing out of 8chan that was sort of infecting mainstream social media and mainstream sort of right wing media in a really disturbing way. And it wasn't giving it wasn't getting the kind of uh, coverage and attention I thought it deserved. So I started tracking the, the sort of the growth and development of this movement. And um, and uh, the I hooked up with my my uh, co-host who actually started the the podcast independent of me because they also thought it was uh very interesting but we started yeah we started talking about the you know, LQAnon and, and then we started talking about we, what we wanted to do is that we talk about like well here's like a, a, a wacky insane thing that uh that QAnon followers believe and we gave the example of adrenochrome which is of course sort of just a repackaged sort of form of the ancient Jewish blood libel this belief that um the elites in order to stay young or get high they drink the adrenalized blood of terrified children um and so so it's like well it's like well this is obviously absurd and stupid but we also want to talk about well is there anything is there any do truth to it is there any were like reason sort of adjacent to this that you might believe it we talked about the ways in which silicon valley people like peter thiel actually did have a company called ambrosia which involved extracting the blood of the young and infusing it into the old and uh in order for them to, to stay young so this was a bizarre sort of plan so obviously the whole adrenochrome thing was, was bizarre but the idea that powerful which people are are think that the blood of the young is very valuable in, in some capacity. Well, there's something to that. So we try to approach it in that way because we try to approach it in a way that recognize the bizarre, uh, often anti-Semitic, often very damaging disinformation and conspiracy theories and extremism that was sort of pouring out of QAnon, while also acknowledging, you know, uh, the ways in which conspiracy theories are fueled in part by a, a little grain of truth that's also worth exploring. Yeah, wait, let's get back to that little grain of truth. What was it that Peter Thiel's company was actually doing? I mean, oh. I knew he was into like cryotherapy stuff and like I he's like one of these guys who probably wanted to freeze himself as much as possible to like slow down whatever. But it, this is this was like a real thing, like infusion of blood or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He came up with this 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 um, uh, this 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 company. 
And uh, yeah, it was well documented a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, yeah, he came up with this, this Ambrosia company that sold uh, plasma transfusions from donors age 16 to 25. Oh my with God. The promise of having like health, healthful uh, benefits and youth affecting benefits to older people. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that was a real company that, uh, marketed this. So, so, you know, I, (laughs) so that's, uh, that's, that's like, you know, again, that's like, again, the, the whole, the whole, the whole, uh, adrenochrome thing, like I said, it's a, it's a part of a very damaging and often deadly sort of anti-Semitic canard. So it's, it's, uh, it's should be resisted and called out wherever it's seen. But, uh, but like, but we also want to talk about, you know, it's like often, often conspiracy theories come from, uh, well, uh, some sometimes it's just just pure, uh, you know, extremism. But there's, you know, there's there's this anxiety. There's this feeling that like the the conspiracy theorist is just a powerful pawn in a big game that the powerful people are playing, and so we need to at least acknowledge that that anxiety a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nathan, you follow the pulse of Twitter and the pulse of the social media. I think really closely. Do you feel like anxiety has gone up over years and do you see that connected to conspiracy? Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, Travis would know this as well. There's a lot of data out there, um, both from polls and and long-term studies that, that show just cultural anxiety increasing, you know, amidst, you know, times of just like with the pandemic going on right now, just as you would see in a post 9-11 world, uh, post like JFK's assassination, like you kind of have these moments in the culture where something massive and confusing and chaotic happens. And it often, you know, sends some portion of the population into this spiral of distrust. And then like we were talking before the show, Travis was mentioning how in large part, a lot of these conspiracy theories that kind of take on an ideological uh, piece to them, like they, have a storytelling element to them. And I think that's what attracts people in a sort of quasi-religious or cultish way, where whether it's a person or an idea or a group of people, they kind of string together, you know, this narrative that makes sense of something that's otherwise difficult to make sense of. And then that just really becomes super attractive in times of worry and distrust and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you know, even if we didn't have the data, I don't think you need, um, I mean, I shouldn't say you don't need a study, but cause I don't want to, I don't want to be all anti-scientific, but it's pretty clear, like at a time like this, why, you know, cultural anxiety would be at a certain high and why we would see the sort of correlation with consp- the rise of conspiracy theories and, and misinformation the way it has. Right. So you, you both have talked and written about, uh, conspiracy theories and you both have talked about sort of cults the the cult aspect of it i always felt like a cult needed some strong charismatic person like the the nexium dude who like was charismatic and like could i could see why that would bring people in but it seems like nowadays am i wrong that's not even necessary because like is q the q of QAnon? nobody even knows who that is it's just these like it could be a computer generating random words for all we know I mean, how is it that Q has been able to amass this cult-like phenomena without being a charismatic person that we can at least see? Am I, or am I missing the charisma in his Q drops? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, well, there, there are a couple things going on. I mean, it's like if you're really curious about like, you know, the the evidence regarding uh, Q's real identity, I'd recommend checking out the HBO documentary Q into the storm, which the the uh, the, the documentarian Colin Hoback, he uh, he investigated uh, this this uh, this thing for three years. And I don't think we have any, um, you know, solid answers about the, the exactly who was involved, but it, he does lay out a lot of evidence regarding who may be behind that. So that's worth checking out. Out. But uh, also, I would say what's what's unique about QAnon is that it provides a kind of like a, a kind of like a, a gamified experience. It provides sort of like I guess the raw materials for a cult like uh, experience because the the premise is that instead of like you know the the cult the cult leader sends out edicts about what is and is not true, uh, the QAnon followers believe that Q sends out these breadcrumbs, these little clues, these little cryptic phrases that the QAnon interpreters must, uh, must uh, you know, must decode in order to make sense of. And they often call this process baking. Uh, and so this guy actually allows people to prop themselves up as interpreters of the Q drops. There's one person named uh, who did this very successfully named Praying Medic. He's a guy out in Arizona. He claimed that he could, uh, you know, help people understand what the Q drops uh, meant. In that sense, it's sort of like uh, it operated a little bit like an MLM, you know, because it allowed people to to uh, establish a social media presence by claiming that they had they could help people understand what the Q drops meant. So instead of like being a sort of like a singular sort of uh, cult leader, it sort of like you know provide the raw materials that allow lots of other individual sort of franchises to pop up around Q. And to and to just to tag on to that too, Travis was saying, um, in, in some regards, there is a kind of loose leader. I mean, some people view the leader as Trump or they'll view the leader as Q, or in, in even the more even the more loose sense, some people just view the leader as God. Like this is all part of God's ultimate plan in some way. So there's kind of these like like he said, there's this interpretive dance going on where you know it kind of inverses what a traditional cult would look like. Whereas traditionally you have a cult leader saying, all right, you must do this, you know, and people kind of fall in line with this Q kind of lays out the groundwork where people can build their own adventure out of this, this, this series of documents and this kind of loose doctrine and this community that gets built out of the, uh, the ideology. So it's kind of, it splinters into a lot of different directions from that. I mean, as yeah. we've, we've seen, you know, Travis mentioned the MLM sort of esque part of this, like, obviously where we've seen people come from, evangelicalism we've seen just secular kind of like like run-of-the-mill people coming to this we've seen um a lot of people coming from the sort of uh self-help and um alternative medicine crowds there's like all these different uh avenues toward the sort of QAnon and just QAnon adjacent conspiracy theory mindset you'd say all right so we're going to introduce sharky now he has made it sharky uh meet the guys guys sharky how's it going sharky yeah, pleasure meeting Hi. you. Hi, guys. All right. So we were just talking a little bit about the conspiracies, why people believe in them, the cult-like figures behind them. And, you know, one thing that, Nathan, you wrote about that I think is really interesting is that these people that are in these groups, part of why they, they are so attached to them is this feeling of being like in a secret group. They have some secret knowledge. <clears throat> They have some they they have some goal. They're heroes in some way that are fighting a bigger system. It's a real emotional response. And I, I feel like people who make these emotional responses, 
And from my perspective as a doctor, it's people who are making what I feel is a very emotional response against vaccines now. But when people have these real emotional connections to something like this, like a, a cult or a conspiracy, how can we break that? Can being intellectually like rigorous with just showing people the information again and again, will that do the trick? Or do we have to also respond to them on an emotional level? Does that make sense? I'm sorry. That was a weird question. Oh, no, of course. Yeah, there's that uh, age-old quote. I don't know who said it, but, you know, you can't reason someone out of a belief that they didn't reason themselves into. I don't necessarily know if that's like a, you know, a for sure thing in every case. I mean, obviously, there's there's people that are able to kind of like deconvert from extremism and, and religious attitudes or whatever. But um, lar- largely speaking, I mean, I think there's there's a million approaches to something like this, but it's kind of like at a two prong level. There's the individual level and the cultural level. I mean, Travis would, would tell you, as would anyone else I know who covers extremism and conspiracy theories, you know, there's a massive gap between talking to like your family member or a neighbor or even like taking the time to message somebody on Twitter versus, you know, trying to prescribe a um, culture wide strategy via media or via government policy to kind of like curb a lot of this stuff and curb these attitudes. So I, I don't, I don't necessarily have a great answer on the the sort of macro level just because it's super complicated. And I think a lot of this stuff, you know, whenever, whenever people give answers to this stuff, you hear them talk about media literacy and how we need to teach, you know, critical thinking in schools. And there, there's obviously tons of truth to that. I mean, there, there needs to be some kind of institutional, uh, kind of a re- reform at, at a really fundamental and and low level, you know, in terms of like starting this at kindergarten or whatever. But um, I think generally speaking, you know, there's not like a, there's no one size fits all like magic pill to kind of, you know, deconvert someone from an extreme belief. I mean, I, I really do try when I talk to people about this and I, I often fail at it because, you know, it's, it's easy to, poke fun and mock and you know talk about this stuff in a more uh condescending way without even meaning to sometimes just because you know we're talking about absurd ideas often oftentimes but you know i try to be at like a relatable level you know try to remind myself and remind people i'm talking to that really anybody can fall for a conspiracy theory and we've all believed a conspiracy theory at some point in our lives or we've all spread misinformation and i think um it's easy to forget that because you kind of get into these rhythms off oftentimes you know especially from the outside looking of something like QAnon, where the first time you hear about it you're like oh my gosh you know this is so extreme and so crazy you know how could anybody ever believe this and then kind of creates this space between you and that person where you can dehumanize them and otherize them and act like it's this absurd thing that you know who would who would ever be stupid enough to fall for something like this and uh, and yet we all know a person who has otherwise, you know, rational critical thinking abilities, who's fallen down these paths. So I think that's like a super, super important step, both on an individual level and a cultural level. If we can get more of that kind of attitude baked in to the work of just kind of reminding people and reminding ourselves, like, dude, whether you're a journalist or whether you're a politician, it's like, we are all capable of, um, of taking on these beliefs and these attitudes and, it's just, I think, especially when you throw your covering misinformation, because like, dude, I've, I've, like I said, I've spread it before. And it's like, if you're someone who's covering it and then you spread it on accident and then you get a bunch of people being like, well, look, you know, you're the one spreading it. You're the one doing this thing. It's like, you have to be able to kind of loosely hold on with like, with humility to, to these things, because otherwise you paint yourself in a corner 
another thing Travis mentioned, this whole blurred line between conspiracy theories like QAnon versus like a real conspiracy, like something like MK Ultra or something like that. And I think, um, you know, it's really important that you don't paint yourself into a corner where you're so like, oh, conspiracy theories aren't real. And none of this stuff happens to the, to the extent that you no longer can like in reality crit criticize power and criticize, you know, areas of government and institutions where there have been corruption and there have been conspiracy theories. So I, all, all that, that's a long winded way of saying, you know, I think a really important aspect of uh, deconverting people or whatever is um, extending an olive branch and like learning how to break that ice when, when, you know, these people oftentimes are so barred down, you know, in their, in their beliefs and they're waiting for you to be condescending. So you got to find a way to break through that just to get a conversation going in the first place. Yeah. 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 Uh, when talking about like how to like curb conspiracy theories, like on a, like on a mass society wide level, uh, I think it's important to, um, to curb your expectations on that by reminding yourself like conspiracism has been with us just always. This is just something that's been with us uh, for, for hundreds of years. In fact, there's this great experiment uh, that was performed by uh, Professor Joseph Yusinski, who wrote um, who's wrote a lot, a lot of great uh, scholarly books on conspiracy theories. Uh, he did this, uh, what he did was that he examined letters to the editor in newspapers from, from 1880 to about 2010. And he tracked basically how often the conspiracy theory was mentioned in these letters to the editor, uh, reasoning that if a conspiracy theory was a part of the discourse, then, then it would be mentioned more frequently in these letters to the editor. Um, and what they found was that, so that there were times basically where conspiracy was like more popular. For example, it, it jumped in the immediate aftermath of the JFK assassination, unsurprisingly, but it's been more or less consistent. This is just a sort of the, there's always a level of conspiracism in the political discourse, just always. As I often mention, the very first third party in the United States is called the Anti-Masonic Party. It was dedicated to the proposition that the that the Freemasons who were in thrall of the, the Illuminati were plotting to take control of the United States, right? And this was back in the early 1800s. So, you know, um, so conspiracism and its influence on politics has always, always, always been with us and it probably always will. Now, uh, that, that doesn't mean that uh, it's, 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 a, it's a futile fight. It doesn't mean that like we should, we should like, you know, allow misinformation to thrive uncontrolled. But I think you have to remember that this is just part of society. It's part of our psychology. It's part of how we operate. So it's normal in a sense. So, uh, so it's something that we should, you know, uh, you know we shouldn't expect any that we that we're going to reach a time in which political discourse consists entirely of sitting down and just hashing out various policy positions. Uh, um, so you've, you've I come to terms with it, like acceptance. I, is I, I'm in denial, is what you're saying. I need to come to acceptance. I mean, I what I say is that it's like when conspiracy theories spread and when they get popular, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. This is normal. <laughs> it's happened before we were bored. It's going to happen after we were dead. So it's, it's, I think it's the truth matters. I think it's still worth fighting. I think it's worth um, uh, uh, directing people towards facts as much as humanly possible. But also don't be shocked when conspiracy theories are popular because they, they always have been and they probably always will be. So Travis, I think that like an, another way of saying what you're saying is like fundamentally our brains are organized as pattern matching machines. And we're just constantly looking for patterns in, in, in data. 
And where things kind of get deconstructed is where we, you know, we read patterns in tea leaves or we read, you know, patterns in uh, events and we want to attribute these causes to, you know, some sort of ulterior motive because it's a, a convenient way of tying everything up in a unifying theory. I'd, I'd even go a step farther and say there's very little that we can do um, actively or aggressively to, you know, kind of move somebody out of conspiracy, you know, mode. That, that being said, there are some strategies that are more effective than others at sort of, shape, you know, getting people to grapple with, you know, uh, any cognitive dissonance and, and sort of accepting reality. And those usually involve um, not being across from them, talking at them, but sitting side by side with them, building uh, friendships and alliances and, and uh, you know, coming coming at them laterally rather than oppositionally. But there's another thing that's happening, which is almost like a, a, a mass dysfunction in psychology where uh, for group cohesion reasons, we're fixating on, or some of us are fixating on solutions like ivermectin or uh, you know some, some of these very anti-science approaches because it's what your group Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And I, I think of that as being different from conspiratism. Like those are two very different psychological states that, you know, conspiratism is coming from a place of not having enough information and pattern matching. The other one's really more about sense of identity and group and who do I belong with and, and what are my people are doing? And also, you know, how do I own the libs? Uh, and until we come up with good counter strategies, we're going to be um, stuck. And, and the last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, we think of, um, you know, we, we think of these things as like something we can like somehow push through and, and persuade these folks, but the more we push, the more they react against, you know, we need better communication strategies overall. And uh, the best place to stop that problem is, is before it starts. It's kind of like a migraine, right? Like once once it's going, you're fucked. I think too, just to tag on that though. So I, I agree that it, there's this tendency just among kind of conspiracy theory uh, commentators and reporters to, it's, it's easy to become nihilistic just about the state of things. And I, I think it's important, you know, even as we talk about this now to kind of 
analyze some of the root causes of this stuff that can be addressed. Um, Cause like Travis said, obviously conspiracism is always going to be with us. I mean, before, even in between these kind of cultural moments, there's still spikes and, you know, interest in these things. I mean, you look at even, I, I was obsessed growing up with the show ancient aliens. I just thought it was super fun, you know, to watch something like that. And like, there's, there's tons of exam. I remember when I was a kid going on YouTube, one of the first, uh, not first, but maybe, you know, the top 50 YouTube videos I saw when it first came out was uh, this like short documentary on the Denver, Colorado airport conspiracy theory. And, and now I, as time's gone on, I've realized that's connected to like stuff about the new world order and all this crap. But I just remember like seeing that as a kid and being like, oh, is this crazy? This is this super interesting? And, you know, there's always going to be some part of the population that's drawn to that type of uh, thinking and those ideas. But it all, in mass, when we talk about this kind of society-wide uh, spread of conspiracy thinking, I do think in large part, when we look at the sort of uh, progression of societal distrust in institutions and experts to where we are now, where, you know, like some of these are at record lows, you know, distrust in the media and then Congress. And uh, it's like, we're seeing the kind of like erosion of a lot of these areas of, of public life. And I think um, some of that, not all of it, but some of that can be addressed via public policy. I mean, it can be addressed by things like healthcare, access to help, better access to healthcare, you know, like reform of a lot of these institutions that have got a more uh, communal level. You know, you look at, there's a lot of research and um, that's been done for decades now, the kind of like erosion of like the community in America, at least specifically, you know, like the decline. And um, there's the, the was, I think it was Robert uh, was it Putnam, the Bowling Alone book. I forget his name. Uh, there's like that book Bowling Alone. I think it came out in like the 80s and the 90s. And it was like analyzing this trend of how uh, memberships and bowling alleys was declining and local rotary clubs and all these and, and then church attendance. And there's all these things that kind of uh, interweave together and show like all these communal spaces in the U.S. at least have been uh, declining over the past few decades. And again, when we talk about the sort of psychology of this stuff, there's like this human need aspect of it, like need for meaning, need for belonging, need for affirmation and, and all of that. But then there's also this sort of a material level of it, which is just like people need access to, to food and healthcare and shelter, and they need their needs covered because when their needs aren't covered, you know, it, it's a lot easier to be in that state of anxiety. So like when we're talking about like, oh, post 9-11, post, you know, COVID, there's this mass and cultural spike of anxiety and, and uncertainty. Otherwise, even if that wasn't happening, you already still have this rising trend of distrust and rise of anxiety because of those more material factors. So there's like a couple things going on there that I think can be addressed and we can fight for at a cultural level. But those are obviously like macro macro things that are, are tougher to tougher to address. And you won't fix that on a podcast necessarily. So <laughs> it, 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 it can feel discouraging. I have faith we that try. we can do it today. I have faith <laughs> we're going to do it. This is the time, guys. Up there, up there is their time. Down here, down here is our time. Out of ideas, right? The, yeah. the book was Bowling Alone by Robert uh, Putnam in, in 2000. What we're talking about, we've, we've mentioned a couple of times how there's been conspiracies uh, forever, and it's just it's something that we are finding ways to, to work around and deal with, and it's, it's a constant struggle. But I do feel like there is something particular to our internet age now where information and misinformation can spread so rapidly and so quickly. And uh, Travis, your show did an, a really amazing job covering the ivermectin 
uh, issue, which I think is like the key example of this. And we've talked about on the show too, so I won't belabor it. And you could definitely listen, listen to Travis's show. Also, if you want to hear about ancient aliens, uh, Nathan, they did an episode on ancient aliens recently as well. <laughs> what that ivermectin story I think really exemplifies is the dangers of uh, preprint publications. And by that, what happened was, well, I'll just give this one example really briefly. In Egypt, in November 2020, the study came out and it showed that ivermectin was like the most amazing drug ever in fighting COVID. And then when people looked at it carefully, they realized that it wasn't true. It, even internally, it didn't make sense. And the article was taken off of the preprint publication, but not before it got cited a bunch of times, got worked into a bunch of meta-analyses, and then contributed to the scientific data that's out there. So it wasn't like people just like saying crazy stuff like they're they're like someone had just made up or they had seen on YouTube. It was like, you know, there was some science behind it. It was bad science, it was poorly done science. But the problem is people do love their open access uh, information. There is some real benefits that people will argue, some very smart scientists and doctors will argue for keeping preprint publications. How do we balance having open access to studies and battling misinformation? Where, where do we go? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, especially when it comes to um like preprints, I think what what's happening here is that the the slow, deliberate process of, sil- of science is crashing right into the hyper fast process of social media information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, and uh, that I think that is that is causing problems because you know uh, ideally you know it's like as we I mean as we saw with the the research in ivermectin, um, you know uh, I mean it's good when someone publishes a study and then re- and then uh, makes it open to other researchers so that they can double check the data and and, and very and interrogate what is going on there to see if the conclusions actually hold up that's 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 part of the process that's great uh but it's not great because before that sort of that uh, that sort of that that extra check on the conclusions can be done uh there are, there's already a, a cult forming around the conclusions there are already people spreading that information so yeah yeah i mean i again i don't have an easy solution either but it's uh it's very very difficult I think too, I mean, we've been saying this the whole time in some way or another, but the, the truth is just boring and people don't like boring. <laughs> you know, it's like, you yeah, know, you yeah. hint at the Stakem account doing commentary. It's like, I think one of the obvious reasons as to why that worked the way it did is because scientists and doctors communicating, you know, the, the sort of um, the efficacy of a, of, of, a, of a vaccine or the validity of a study and in, in super academic terms, this is not something that most people find compelling on just a, a a media consumption level. So you know they're looking for things like this podcast, like QAnon Anonymous. You know, like people want to be entertained while they're consuming their information. You know, you're looking for whatever that edge is going to be to uh to make you feel something while you you know. And I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else. You know, I prefer YouTubers and podcasters and fun articles versus over, you know, academic writing and all that. So it's just, it's part of the, this whole overarching um, issue, but also in solution, the solution is in the issue, I think, which is the fact that we've been dancing around this idea that, you know, people are attracted to narratives and it's all about storytelling and conspiracy theories are just the kingpin of storytelling. You know, you can't weave a better story than they, than they do because they yeah. just kind of, they can say whatever they want. They can make it as crazy and extreme as they want. But we can 
compete on different levels. You know, we can, you know, dress the truth up in ways that, you know, people are willing to consume. We can also, you know, speak truth to the problems that are actually happening in society, which, you know, you often get that's also manipulated by populists, you know, like Trump, you know, who will kind of pseudo speak to an issue of people struggling, you know, working class people or whatever, but it's, you know, under the guise, you know, of some, you know, hyper extreme rhetoric or whatever. So there's obviously ways to use and abuse this, but I think, I think storytelling is just a, a, a central part of what we need to, to combat this stuff because you're not going to see the, um, you know, the, the big hand of government crack down on individuals, right. To, to produce this stuff, you know, it's just not going to happen. I mean, and if, even if it did happen, it's like, we see, we already see right now the repercussions of that on like scales of like YouTube or whatever, you know, people, or even Twitter, you know, people yeah. for every account that gets banned or it gets a strike against it, you know, there's a bunch that get the same thing who didn't deserve it. You know, it's like, it's really hard to, to divvy out, you know, the regulation of this stuff. And it's going to take, I think a long time, a lot of trial and error between uh, private institutions, corporations, and governments to, to kind of sort out, you know, how, how best to regulate. So in the meantime, we, we've got stories, you know, <laughs> I, I, you're dead on right about stories. I actually, stories are like, it's the most powerful tool, um, in the arsenal. Like I, I myself have seen, like, I, I, I went online one day and I told a story about a stolen van and eight months later, a governor was signing my law, state law. Um, you know, just because I told a story on, on Twitter uh, and you could directly attribute Governor Brown signing the law. There was a straight direct line from me telling a story on Twitter. Right. And, and there's so many different instances and cases where somebody found the right way to tell the right story uh, that 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 resonated. And, you know, I think that there there's a hint of a clue there. Um, even uh, Nathan, I think what you've done with the the Stakeom account is, is a hint of a clue, right? Like uh, getting people interested in you know thoughts that they would otherwise find it extremely boring. It's suddenly interesting because it's a steak sandwich that's you know uh, expressing this, right? Um, and I think you know one last thing. I want to make a confession about these academic journals and, and preprints. Just like everybody else suffering through a pandemic, I've been like pouring through all this, becoming a, you know, glorified amateur epidemiologist, glorified amateur uh, sociologist, um, reading all this stuff. I think I'm a pretty sophisticated reader of academic literature, and I have to confess, I probably understand 10 to 20 percent of what I'm reading at best. Um, and... I think that's an illusion that these preprints give. Um, you read the abstract or you read the conclusion or you read one sort of, you know, piece of the data and, and you think you have some understanding of it. You're missing that's, a lot. That's nothing to, you know, feel bad about. These things are hotly debated amongst, you know, scientists and doctors. A recent paper came out looking at the VAERS data the adverse reporting system. And it, it was kind of, you know, my opinion, a bad paper because um, it misused the VAERS reporting system. But that was something that was a 
difficult discussion to be had amongst a bunch of doctors and who are people who are like studying like pediatric cardiology. You know, we needed experts who actually knew specifically about the reporting system to come on and talk to us and tell us what was going on. That stuff gets really hard to do. Um, part, part of what I think we need to be able to do better is explain not necessarily the science, but the scientific process. To people. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who just get really pissed off when our recommendations change. But that's how science works, unfortunately. For good or bad, science changes with the information that we're given. That's what makes us different than, say, another sort of belief system like religion, which is it's almost opposite. You know, here we get new information, we make new recommendations based on that. And that is something that I think a lot of people don't have a good sense of. And and I don't know what that is. I don't know if that just means teaching the scientific method, but I feel like that's something we have to explain to people. Because you know, early on in the in this pandemic, you know, when we were first being asked, people would ask me, "Do we think masks are important?" And at first, I was thinking, "No, they're probably not that important." But then the information started to come out. We started to see the data. We started to see that it was helpful, and I changed my recommendation on that. And that's just part of how the science the scientific process works. You know, I I, I don't know how to to address that, but I feel like that's something we need to be able to, to show Americans. That lines up with, I think, with a lot of what we're saying. It's just, it's like we're, whether we like it or not, whether we think it should be or shouldn't be this way, the information is democratized through the internet. So, you know, everybody has access to all this stuff, not just preprints, but really any belief they want to hold. So yeah, what better way to, to help people navigate that in mass, you know, than how to think, you know, critical thinking, media literacy, all of that because, you know, us trying to instill our thoughts or beliefs, even if they're the right ones, can often result in some form of backfire. Um, I, you know, I know the backfire effect itself has kind of been debunked in large part in, in some ways, but there still can be a sort of, um, you know, backlash in some yeah. ways. We try to force people. It just comes across condescending. We all yeah. do it. But, you know, right, it's right. just like, oh, you should believe what I believe. And, you know, it's a lot better to kind of, you know, the Socratic method, asking people questions and just kind of walking them through why they think what they think. And hopefully that over time has some kind of impact on, on how they learn. All right. Let me shift gears a little bit here to talk about something I don't entirely understand about these people pushing contrarian beliefs who I think know better. Maybe I'm wrong. But I want to know what the end game of some of these people like Tucker Carlson is. You know, he pushes this line of questioning. He pushes a lot of anti-vax stuff or things that could easily are one step away from anti-vax at best, if I'm being generous. And it's stuff that I think is really hurting his demographic, his audience. And I can't understand what his end game is. Has he just done some sort of very cynical calculation in his brain, which is like, I know I can lose X amount of listeners and I'll still do great. Is it just that he's afraid of losing any sort of power and he feels this is his way to cling to it? What is the end game for people like that? Um, I'll jump in through a, 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 a side lens, right? Um, because this reminds me of the difference between what we, we think of our political leaders as independent actors uh, but really they're representatives, right? Uh, and when you're a representative, your job is to articulate the views of the folks that you're representing or that you're charged with representing. 
And you have some slight ability to nudge the folks that you're representing, but not anywhere near as much as people think you do. So like a good example would be like Trump recently said something positive about vaccines and the crowd immediately started booing him. And that was kind of the end of that. Um, and Trump himself has uh, obviously been vaccinated. Uh, and so I think with, uh, you know, folks like uh, Tucker, with folks like Haney, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Hannity and uh, Trump, you're not so much seeing uh, cynicism per se as they see it as their job to articulate the a, a viewpoint that has sprung up almost you know from their perspective it's going to feel almost organically uh, around uh you know the kinds of things they say and and so they want to represent those viewpoints and and when they go off the reservation even a little bit those folks let them know loudly and clearly repeatedly over and over and over again and so it becomes a self-reinforcing uh, you know, an echo chamber, uh, it's, it's an overused word, but it's, 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 it's true in this case. And so, you know, I think Tucker, if, if he's examining himself, he's like, well, I'm just, I'm representing these people that don't other, that otherwise wouldn't have a voice. Uh, you know, is, is it 100% aligned with how I view things? No. But if I don't say it, somebody else will. And I'm the person they want to say it. What do you think, Travis? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to remember that, like, uh, Tucker Carlson, yeah, is the number one uh, uh, cable news show in primetime, right? And I think he got that the way that any uh, talented marketer uh, gets to a top position by understanding what his audience wants and then giving it to them. Right. And I think that that's that's really it. It's not that it's not that uh, Tucker Carlson is uh, is <laughs> I mean, perhaps he is indifferent to the, the lives of his viewers, but he's really re he really understands he's res he's being led around the nose, I think, by the audience that he's built for himself. He understands uh, what they what they want to hear and they don't want to hear. Um, oh, this uh, these these eggheads at the CDC really do are actually correct on the vaccine. You probably should get it because that. Uh, that would make his audience unhappy. So, I mean, I think it's really just simple as that. I mean, a, Tucker Carlson got into the position he is by listening to a certain uh, segment of the United, United States that uh, felt like they weren't being listened to and listening to them very well and then telling them what they want to hear. Yeah, even if it's not helping them. You know, yeah, and if, if you feel like you haven't been heard, like you are going to have a uh, oversized reaction to being heard, which actually makes you a, a stronger, more passionate listener, which is great if you're the host of that listener, right? Like these, these folks are, are both benefiting from and feeding the flames. There, there was this interesting psychological study that uh, I remember hearing about. I don't know if it was actually true or not, but it was something a class did to their professor. The lecture hall was split into two, basically two sides. And the people on the right side would, would nod aggressively and seem really sort of uh, it, they would approve of everything the professor said and then the other side would kind of cross their arms and kind of like look quizzically at the professor when he made a point and what they found was that over the course of the year 
the professor just started talking to that one side of the audience that was looking at him approvingly. And he'd even go to talk to the other side of the audience. I mean, I don't know if there's any truth of that actual study being done. Let's, let's switch gears again here. Um, let's talk about Facebook shutting down recently. I guess the first question I have for you is, did you notice that people seemed a lot happier? Like people seemed happy when it happened. What does that say? People were ecstatic in a way. They're like that, that shut down. What does that say? Well, people, people, people were happy on Twitter, which was, which is, which is a different <laughs> social media platform, which I, which I think is relevant. Um, I think that people, uh, people, you know, I mean, the thing is that uh, I think like Facebook and Twitter, they serve different, uh, serve different markets, let's say. And so as a consequence, uh, you know, the kinds of people who get popular on Twitter already are adverse to Facebook because Perhaps that's where their family is and they're not really interested in communicating with those people. So, um, yeah, I mean, but I think that I wouldn't be surprised if people if, it, if the the five hour or so shut down the Facebook led to a net increase of happiness more generally. <laughs> I think, too. Yeah. Like there's like the, the joke on Twitter is like, who's who's the main character of Twitter today and whoever the it's the person who's getting canceled or whoever wrote a, a stupid op ed piece and they're now the punching bag. Of, uh, of everybody that day. And I think there's always something to those moments where you just kind of, just like anything else like we're talking about, it's like everybody kind of rallies behind this singular purpose and everybody gets to mock somebody or everybody gets to joke about like, there was that thing, like, what was it, the other month when the boat got stuck in the canal yeah. and everybody on the internet's joking about it. It's like, this is just one of those moments that in, in, for a brief moment of time, the internet kind of came together and it was like, okay, this is the, most important topic of discussion let's put aside our differences and joke about this thing and and unlike it being targeted at an individual or like a belief system which often just doesn't result in in, in depolarization in mass this kind of kind of gave it an amorphous feeling of like everything's all right for a little bit so yeah it was a it was an interesting fun day for like travis said at least for people on twitter all right i got I got so many more questions to ask you guys. I mean, I, but I, uh, we're going to call it here uh, for the sake of keeping this episode from getting too long, but it, it's, it's hard for me to let you guys go. Cause it's like three of the smartest people I know uh, on a phone call with me right now, but I'm going to do it. Let me um, real quick before we, we close out, I didn't get to introduce Sharky. Let me just, uh, we'll get our, our plugs in right here. Sharky Laguana recovering musician, CEO of Bandigo, Campago, uh, president of the San Francisco Small Business Commission. Sharky, uh, where can people find you? Uh, you know, if you want to hear me say a bunch of dumb shit like I did tonight, uh, Sharky L uh, is my Twitter account, and that's probably the best place. Uh, and Nathan Alabach, of, uh, the creative director of Alabach Communications, um, man, I think everyone at this point, if they're not already following Stakeums, they obviously should, but they should be following your account as well. Can you tell people where to find you? Same. I mean, just my name, Nathan Allabach. That's the, uh, the at for Twitter and Instagram or wherever else, uh, medium, uh, I guess. Uh, yeah. Wh wh wherever you want to find me. That's, that's, that's the name. So. <laughs> and you're going to send me some of your music, right? Yes, I will send you a link to, to some tunes that, you know, will, will be a, at least a, hopefully a mediocre joy to you. So <laughs> I, I want to be CC'd. Thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> CC uh, Sharky on that. Um, and uh, Travis View, host of the podcast Q Anonymous, uh, which I really, I'm being honest, I, I've 
been listening to a ton of recently. I think it's a really great podcast and I really appreciate what you and those guys over there are doing. Um, can you please tell people where to find you? Yeah, yeah. You can find me on Twitter. This uh, at Travis underscore view. And uh, yeah, you can listen to uh, Anonymous on your favorite podcasting app. We recently did a two-part series on a satanic panic that happened in Northern Ireland, sort of in the middle of the Troubles, which is, uh, I think, a really fascinating story. So yeah, it's a fun time. And uh, thank you to Nadine for help with production. Thank you to uh, sorry underscore hat, the Twitter guy whose idea it was to get this group of people together. And that was a great idea. Um, If you haven't already, please follow us and rate and review us at iTunes. Uh, And thank you guys so much for coming on. Can't wait to uh, talk to you guys some more in the future. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.